Cindy? Cindy Tennant? Awesome job last Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, woohoo is right. They just voted. You're coming back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you, Cindy. I know that's not easy. But uh, if you ever wonder why uh, the kids' ministry is just rocking and rolling and going the way it does, Brian with the older kids and Cindy with the younger kids and everybody that helps out and volunteers are the hearts and the reasons behind it. And you got to hear part of it. So, Cindy, thank you. Really, really well done. Yeah. You might notice there's some changes up on the platform. And this thing is different. We've got a new pulpit up here. It isn't actually new at all. My great-grandfather, Ivor, made this. He, he got, I was talking to my mom. He uh, came over on the boat from Sweden, and he helped plant a church in northern Minnesota in a small town. When he moved to the big city of Thief River Falls, uh, he was a carpenter. He made this thing probably 80 or 90 years ago, and uh, it has come all the way full circle, and now I get to stand behind it, and that is a pretty awesome thing. My mom was saying that with Ivor, we don't know about before him, but Ivor down to Willow, Missouri, six generations. In that family, that's pretty, you talk about God being faithful, that's a faithful God. So that's what this is here for, and boy, am I privileged to be able to stand behind it. Uh, Cindy did a great job last night opening up and, and just putting into very, very simple to understand terms uh, this incredible message of Abraham and Sarah. And the question that I really walked away from it with, what happens when your expectations are different than God's plans? What happens when what you expect to happen, maybe you've been told, she used a great example about her son, maybe you've been told what you should think is coming, and what falls out or what rolls out is completely different than your expectation. What happens when your expectations are different than God's plans? That's what we call life. But in this passage today, we're going to look at Joseph, and you talk about God being faithful and expectations different than plans uh, this is another great example of it. God has to have a sense of humor. You know the joke, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? God's got to have a sense of humor because somehow he takes our little ideas and he changes them. He does. God does with them what we allow him to do with them. And, and God's result, God's plan and purpose is always so much more than we would have ever imagined or prayed for. And yet we are so good at holding on to this idea that it has to be this way because this is what I want or this is what I expect. You're going to learn some good lessons from Joseph today. But one of the things we can always be sure of is that our God who makes the impossible possible is always at work. He's at work in your life, and he's at work in our world yesterday, today, and forever. And it might not feel like God is working on your behalf right now, but we're going to take a look today, well, maybe about why that is and what it is that God's really doing about it. So if you've got a Bible, jump to Genesis 37. If you don't, we've got these in the back. It's a New Living Translation. I'm going to be preaching on that through this whole series. We would love to give you one of these. And then what I would ask is, whether it's this Bible or your own, bring it to church with you on Sunday mornings and follow along. We need to be people who know and study and spend time in God's Word. And even if you don't feel like you've got time throughout the week, let's make the time and do it here. So we're jumping to Genesis 37. We're introduced to this, this young man named Joseph. There's a lot that happens in Scripture between Abraham and Joseph. There's a whole lot that's going on. A lot of it which we just shouldn't skip at all, but we just don't have time to cover. So starting this Wednesday, we're going to do what's called Between the Passages. Right here at 6 o'clock, we're going to do a, st a Bible study for adults 
What's going on in Scripture between the passages that we start one Sunday and the where we go the next Sunday? We're going to fill in all those pieces. So read ahead, read along, come with your questions. It's going to be a good time. Six o'clock right here Wednesday nights. So Joseph's life, by any measure, is a remarkable one. We're introduced to Joseph as a 17-year-old kid. He is a shepherd working for his father. He's got a number of older brothers. His father is named Jacob. The Bible, as we're into this passage, begins referring to him as Israel because God renamed him Israel. He renamed him the land and the name of the people who he would father. And so in the passages, it goes between Jacob and Israel. It's the same guy, Joseph's father. And what we find out from Scripture is with all these sons, Jacob's favorite was Joseph. And Joseph was his favorite because Jacob was an old man when Joseph was born. He was kind of the the surprise that came along later, and somehow he just was extra special to his father's heart. And his older brothers despised Joseph. He was daddy's boy. They didn't like him in the first place. He, they probably figured he didn't work as hard, and you know he was the one that always got off easy, and dad always favored him. And then his father goes and does something that's just ridiculous. Back in this day, all of the men wore robes, right? They were basically shoulder to ankles. They were pretty much the cover, color of the ground they lived on, which is dust. Dirt colored, nothing special about them. There was, there was no big deal, but they were very practical. They served a purpose. It wasn't just clothing, but they were functional. Joseph's father goes and does the unbelievable thing where he gives his youngest son, Joseph, not a dirt-colored robe, but a robe of many colors, the Bible says. Now, if you saw the Donny Osmond thing years ago, like I got to do with my family, they call it the Technicolor dream coat. It wasn't Technicolor. The Bible says it was many colors. But Joseph's brothers didn't like him before he got this. Can you imagine how they felt about Daddy's boy now? He gets everything that he wants. He probably asked for that. Nobody had a fashion robe. Joseph shows up in his multicolored robe. He's kicking around that. Suddenly he starts fashion in the Middle East all these thousands of years ago. The brothers didn't just dislike him now. They began to hate him. The thing that was growing in them took over. They did a few things. They took note. Look at this. Look what Dad did now. He's always been his favorite. Now he gives him this colored robe. Who's ever seen a colored robe? He's going to run around thinking he's all that in a bag of chips. Then they took offense because they didn't get one. They worked harder. They were older. They deserved it. And then they started to plot to take action against daddy's boy, their younger brother. And that's what offense does. See, they went from, they went from disliking him to hating him to the point that the Bible says they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. That's how much they despised Joseph. But see, Joseph apparently, he didn't know how to leave that angry bear of his older brothers alone. It wasn't enough that he had a robe. He shows up one day and he says, hey, guess what, guys? I had a dream. I had a dream and it's awesome because in my dream, as he's wearing his coat, you all bow down to me. They took note. They took offense. And their plan to take action really picked up speed. That was too much. And the thing is, they add jealousy and anger to their hatred of Joseph. And the offense multiplied to the point that they almost couldn't handle it anymore. And here's the thing about offense. When you allow yourself to be offended, because that's a tool of the devil to be offended, right? When you allow yourself to be offended, you begin to justify and offense can become deadly. 
If it doesn't get the best of you, it could likely get the best of somebody else because of what it causes you to do. In this case, offense begins to turn deadly. So as people often do when we allow the devil to crawl under our skin and take root in our minds, we get offended by other people and we justify ourselves by saying, I've got a right to be offended. His brothers believed they had a right to be offended. But you know, it's interesting to me because there are some people who feed off of offense. Offense is their fuel. Offense is the only thing that really seems to make them happy. They look for people and places and institutions and groups and churches. They're just waiting to be offended. They're just waiting for someone to let them down or to to disappoint them. Then instead of dealing honestly with those thoughts and feelings like what we should do, you decide, you know, the problem isn't me. I, I don't have a problem. The real problem isn't me. The real problem is the other people who don't get it. The real problem is their problem. And that's exactly what Joseph's brothers did. Their youngest brother, Joseph, who the Bible doesn't say asked for this robe, doesn't say he asked to be treated any different. It said his father liked him more. He loved Joseph more. We don't know why. And so instead of dealing with their anger issues, they decided that Joseph was the problem and the problem needed to be dealt with. And what so often happens is, We deal with problems when we see them as other people by just getting rid of them. They decide to kill Joseph. One brother, only one brother of all of these brothers, said, we we can't kill him. That's not the right thing to do. we got to come up with something else. So instead, they decide, Joseph comes out to them. They're all hanging out, doing their thing out in the desert. Joseph gets sent out to them. They've got an opportunity. Offense and opportunity. They decide if we're not going to kill him, we're going to throw him in a pit. Now, a pit, sometimes the Bible talks about wells. This wasn't a well. It's a different word. It's a pit. Sometimes they're three feet wide. Sometimes they're 20 feet wide. Sometimes they're 10 feet deep. Sometimes they're 30 feet deep. They're used as latrines. They're used as places to throw garbage. They're used as places to throw robbers if you catch them and can get them tossed in there. The reason is when you go to the bottom of a pit, the idea is that it doesn't come out. Okay? Now, I'm going I'm to step on some toes here, but if you watch Yellowstone... This is their version of the train station. What goes there never comes out. That's what's happening with this pit. They threw him down there knowing they weren't going to let him out. And when you look into a pit, when you're in the bottom, either you look at the walls and there's no way to get out, or you look up. The only hope you possibly have has to come from above. Joseph is about to learn a long lesson about his hope coming from above. Psalm 121 says it like this, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, we think in our world, God is up, and so we often think about looking up. Where is our hope? Our hope is from God. The only hope that Joseph had at this point was whatever God might do for him. Newsflash, we fast forward a whole lot of years, God is still your only hope. You maybe have created a pit for yourself. Maybe you feel like you've got thrown into one, but you know the feeling of of desperation, of desolation, of hopelessness, of being in a pit. The only hope that you've got is God. But you go back to that dream that he told his brothers about, a pit wasn't in the dream. Nowhere in that dream did God give him an idea that he was going to be looking up at the sunlight from 20 feet down. 
It wasn't a part of Joseph's expectation for his life. But Joseph, he, he knew that God had a plan and had a purpose because he'd given him this dream. Even if nobody else wanted to hear about it, even if it made his brothers want to kill him, Joseph knew that God had a plan and a purpose for him. And the thing is this, you might know the plan and purpose that God has for your life, and it might be that like Joseph, nobody else wants to hear it. When we launched this place, you can't imagine how many people told me it was the worst thing we could have done. But when God has a plan and a purpose for you, there's no person on earth that can take it away. And Joseph being thrown into the bottom of a pit in the desert by brothers who hated him did not change the plan and the purpose that God had for his life. So the brothers, being guys of opportunity, they weren't real hard workers. They see an opportunity, a solution, a group of Ishmaelites, basically the enemies. You go back to Abraham and Isaac and Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac's half-brother. These are people from the tribe of Ishmael, the enemy of Joseph's family and his people. They see them coming to him and they go, you know what? We can work this out. This might be really cool. We sell him as a slave that we picked up along the way. They can take him wherever we want. We don't care. We're rid of the problem. Joseph is gone. So they work out a deal with the Ishmaelites and they sell him Joseph and they take him as a slave and they brought him to Egypt. And they sell him to Potiphar, an official to Pharaoh. But then the brothers realize, what are we going to tell dad? We, we, we don't really have a good answer. So they take this robe that they hated so much that represented the brother that their father loved so much and they take a goat that they had been in charge of shepherding and taking care of and they kill the goat, they slaughter the goat, they execute the goat in order to use his blood to smear all over the robe to bring back to dad to tell him a wild animal must have gotten your beloved son. All we found was the robe. See, what offense does is causes us to do things otherwise we wouldn't do. Their responsibility was to care for these animals. And their sin, they needed to cover. They needed to find a way to hide their sin. So they killed the animal that they were responsible for, spread the blood on Joseph's robe, and brought it back to Dad and said, he's dead. Offense is deadly. The enemy wants to crawl into your head and tell you that you deserve better. That you deserve more. And the real problem, you know what? The problem isn't you. The problem is that person that got the promotion you should have had. Somebody else got the raise. That money was yours. You've been working hard for it. Whatever it is, we always look to the problem as somebody else. And that gives us the reason, the excuse for offense. So what ends up happening? They justify their sin. They bring this robe back to dad that said he's dead and gone. Must have been a wild animal. Joseph is taken to Egypt and he's sold to a guy named Potiphar. And he goes to work in Potiphar's house as a servant. He's the captain of the uh, Pharaoh's guard. None of this was in Joseph's dream. This was not what he was expecting. This wasn't his plan. And yet it said that he worked diligently and he earned favor and he did a good job. He wasn't angry. He wasn't offended. He was productive. He was faithful. He, he was a real life example of what happens when life gives you lemons. You make lemonade. And that's what Joseph was doing. Well, it didn't take very long for Mrs. Potiphar to get a look at 17-year-old Joseph. Decides he's a good-looking young man. So she, when Potiphar is gone, Mr. Potiphar is at work one day. Mrs. Potiphar invites Joseph to her room. Joseph says, no way. I wouldn't do that to Potiphar. Wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't do that to my God. The answer is no. Mrs. Potiphar gets offended. Potiphar comes home, and what does she do? She explains to him that this kid made a pass at me. 
She launches an untrue accusation, and then she piles lie on top of lie, lie for, the, for the sake of assassinating Joseph's character before his boss and owner, knowing that her wealth and her position is the only thing that her husband would listen to. And what happens? He gets thrown in prison. Joseph has done everything right. This is not his expectation. This is not his plan. Joseph is now in prison, all because these people have been offended. You think you've had some tough breaks? <laughs> if you didn't trust that God had a plan for you, you wouldn't be here right now. If you didn't believe that God had more for your life, you wouldn't spend your time sitting in church or watching online. Something about you know God's got something more for you than what you're seeing right now. Maybe it's because you feel like you're living in a pit. Maybe it's because you feel like you're a hamster on a wheel. Maybe you're just not seeing what you're supposed to be doing. But the fact that you're even listening tells me that you know that God has a plan for you that's greater than what your vision can see, and that's the way that God works. You might think it sounds like Joseph is cursed, but Joseph doesn't see it that way. And as we read this history, we realize God is preparing Joseph for the fulfillment of his plans that he has for him. Because God is at work in Joseph's life. And rather than being angry or resentful, Joseph is faithful. There's a very, very important lesson here for us. What you consider to be suffering, what you consider to be persecution, what you consider to be unfair because you believe you deserve better, could very well be the training that God has you going through the life that he is preparing you for. We might look at it and go, this is a worst-case scenario, God. It doesn't get tougher than this. I don't know how you'll let me get to this point. Maybe God is training you for what it is that he is really preparing you for. Because God is at work. <clears throat> There's a guy named Somerset Maugham. He was an English writer. A lot of people quote him. He's got cute little stories and things. And he tells one about a janitor at a church, St. Peter's Church in London. And this janitor couldn't read or write. And a new pastor shows up, and he gets to know the janitor. And the new pastor decides, you can't have an illiterate janitor working in a church for crying out loud. We need someone who's a little bit educated. And he fires him. Fires the guy. The janitor, unemployed, takes a little bit of money that he'd stuck away, and he finds a very small tobacco shop for sale. And he makes an offer, and he buys it. And the one thing that this, this man could do, he couldn't read or write, but he was really good with people. He was honest. He worked hard, and before you know it, he found success in his tobacco shop to the point that he found another tobacco shop. And before long, he had an entire chain of tobacco shops. This illiterate man. He goes to his banker one day, and the banker goes, you realize that you're worth, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars? And the guy just doesn't really care. That's not really what he's in it for. And he said, you've done really well for an illiterate. You ever think about where you'd be if you could actually read and write? The guy says, well, I'd be a janitor at St. Peter's Church. <laughs> maybe what you think of as suffering, maybe the thing that you're complaining about, maybe the thing that's given you a struggle right now is the very thing that God is trying to use to push you out of the comfortable nest that you've built yourself. Maybe God is trying so hard to move you to the next level when all you're doing is fighting, trying to stay stuck right where you are. Maybe the pit 
that you're in, you created for yourself because at least it's a pit that you know. Where would he be? He'd be a janitor at the church that he had been at when he got fired. So it doesn't take very long for this Egyptian jailer to spend time with Joseph and realize God was with this man. This Joseph was not your ordinary prisoner. He didn't act like one. He didn't talk like one. He didn't behave like one. And before you know it, the guy who's in the head of the jail ends up giving all the responsibilities of the jail, including the responsibility for the other prisoners, to Joseph. He gives the prisoner responsibility for the jail and the other prisoners. You talk about God being the one who makes the impossible possible. A prisoner is put in charge of the prison. That's God at work, folks. Before you know it, Joseph finds himself with these two officials that had fallen out of favor with Pharaoh. One of them is a baker and one of them is a cupbearer. And they have these dreams and they drive them crazy. They don't know what they mean. And Joseph says, tell me your dreams. I'll tell you what they mean. So the, the uh, baker tells him his dream. And Joseph says, well, what that means is that in three days, your, your head's going to be separated from your body. Not so good for the baker. The cupbearer tells him his dream, obviously a little bit concerned. And Joseph says, well, what it means in three days is you're going to be restored to your position with the Pharaoh. When you get there, please don't forget me. The cupbearer forgot him. And the baker lost his head. God is at work. The one that didn't get out of jail is Joseph. Two more years pass. 70, 730 days, 104 weeks. Joseph is in prison. Doesn't have a way out. Doesn't see anything positive, but he never gives up hope. It's at this point that the cupbearer before Pharaoh is in Pharaoh's presence, and Pharaoh talks about a dream that he has. And it doesn't make sense. And when you read it in the Bible, and I'm going to encourage you to do that, there's all kinds of imagery that just doesn't make sense. And the cupbearer says, you know what? When I was in prison, there was another guy there. He was a foreigner. His name was Joseph. And The old baker and I, we both had dreams, and we brought them to him, and he told us, and he was exactly right. What he said is exactly what happened. Pharaoh says, bring him to me. Bring him to me right now. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph sits in Pharaoh's house, and he says, tell me the dream. And he says to Pharaoh, you are going to see seven years of great abundance and then seven years of tremendous famine. Pharaoh is so grateful to Joseph That he gives him an Egyptian name, he gives him an Egyptian wife, he gives him a position of power over all of Egypt, so that the only one that has more power in the land of Egypt is a foreigner named Joseph. Think about that. It all started in a pit and he refused to give up hope. But God was training him for this very thing. He was given position of a man's house and he handled that well. It didn't go well for him, but Joseph handled it well. He was then given position of power in a jail, and he handled that well. He was then given by Pharaoh position where he had control over all of Egypt so that the only one with more power in the land was Pharaoh himself. That thing that you call suffering might be God's way of trying to train you for what it is that he has next for you. Well, with his Egyptian wife, Pharaoh had two sons. In Genesis 41, 51, it says this, Joseph named his older son Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all of my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim. For he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. Joseph named the sons after the two big phases of his life. He didn't pretend the one didn't exist. He, gave, he was grateful that God had brought him through it. 
And then he recognized the position he had wasn't about him at all. God has made me faithful in this land of my grief. See, God reminds us through Joseph that remembering our past, even when it's painful, and being grateful to God who carries it through us, carries us through it, is so important. It is so important to remember the lessons of our past. You know why America, in part, has become what we've become that is so frightening to me? It's because we have become the cancel culture hotbed of the world. And what cancel culture is all about is taking away parts of past, taking away voices or ideas that some people don't want to be have made known. And the enemy of God is behind all of that. All of those who do his bidding know that if we can cancel our history, if we can wipe out the reminders of it, if we can cancel the memory and then somehow destroy the people who would speak out against the cancelers, we are guaranteed to repeat the worst part of our pasts. And what's happening is, it isn't that something new is happening. It's that what's happening, people think, is happening for the first time. And it can only be good when every example in history has been nothing but bad, but we've wiped them out. God has prepared us for this moment, and we've decided we want to forget it. And God reminds us with Joseph, remembering your past is so important. God in his word would have us remember and learn from our history. And that's what Joseph is doing. One look at cancel culture in America today and you can realize it is exactly the opposite of what God's word talks about. So this turn of events, it's a lot better than most of what Joseph has been living through. Being a part of Pharaoh's court, being in charge of the whole country, it's all pretty good. But it gives you an idea of God's idea of patience. Joseph was 17 years old when he had this dream. At 17, he said, one day all of you brothers are going to bow down to me. At this point in his life, the Bible tells us he's 30, which means it's 13 years of patience. It's 13 years of his expectations having nothing to do with God's plan and purpose. It's 13 years of him trusting when he couldn't see. <laughs> How would you like that? 13 years. 13 years of waiting. 13 years of trusting. 13 years of growing and becoming closer to God and preparing for whatever it was that God was going to be placing him into. He didn't know. He just knew that one day his brothers would bow to him. You might think that God's taken his time or has forgotten about you. You might think that your prayers are going unanswered. But you've got to be patient because God might be waiting for you to grow in your faith. God might be waiting for you to draw closer to him. Maybe like Abraham and Sarah, God is looking to you to fully trust and live in the faith that you say that you have. Because God's not going to move you on to that next chapter of life until you're ready. Because if he does, he knows good and well you're going to fall flat on your face. And God's plan for you is not to have you fall flat on your face. So Joseph, the Bible says, led, led Egypt through these years of plenty. And what he did was as the harvest came in, he built storage houses in every community. And so that they had way more grain and storage than they'd ever had, way more than they needed. And I have to imagine the people looked at him like he was a little bit like Noah. What's the point? We got all this good food. We just want to eat and be happy. But no, we need to save it. After the famine had begun and they needed to rely on those stores, turns out that the famine went a lot further than just in Egypt, all the way to the land of his father and brothers. One day, Joseph's older brothers show up, 
They ask to buy grain. And they come to him because that's his job. Genesis 42.6 records that meeting this way. Since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. And when they arrived, are you ready? They bowed before him with their faces to the ground. They didn't know it was Joseph. They knew that it was the official who was in charge of Egypt, the one man under Pharaoh. They didn't recognize their brother. For all they knew, their brother was dead. But this man had a place of respect and authority. And if they didn't treat him well, they weren't going home with grain and their family desperately needed it. They weren't going to return home to dad without food. Remember the dream that started all the trouble? The one where Joseph told his brothers that they would all bow down to him? Joseph didn't tell him who he was right away. Joseph was faithful to God, and God was faithful to Joseph. God had given Joseph a dream, and Joseph held on to that his whole life. Joseph didn't get here without a lot of faith, without a lot of patience, and without an awful lot of discipline on his part. See, God will always go above and beyond whatever it is that we expect or we might hope or we might pray. That's the way God is. That's what God does. But it begins with our faith and our faithfulness. I've said many times that God can't bless us outside of our obedience to him. Blessing comes out of obedience. And Joseph was obedient. If God doesn't seem to be working for you, are you living for God? If God doesn't seem to be listening to you, are you really trusting God? If God seems to be a far way away from you, how close and how hard are you working to be close to God? So there's some back and forth here with Joseph and his brothers. And he tests them. He doesn't let them know who he is right away. And he tests them and they go home and they got to leave a brother and there's a whole thing that happens before they're able to bring their grain home. And then one day... Joseph has them bring father. And so Jacob comes and he and Joseph meet for the first time. And there's this incredible homecoming. And Joseph gives his brothers and his father and all of their families some of the best land in Egypt to live on. Because then Joseph could take care of them. And there's this great, great reunion between Joseph and Jacob, the father who had loved this son who he had thought was lost and dead for years and years. Finally, Jacob realizes he's coming to the end of his life. And he has the opportunity to bless his sons. And typically a father would start with the oldest son because that's the one that gets the majority of the estate. But Jacob wanted to bless Joseph and his sons. And so what a father would do is if there's one boy, he would lay his right hand on the one boy. If there's two, the right hand onto the oldest and the left hand on the youngest. And Jacob sat down and he put his right hand on the youngest son. Ephraim, and he put his left hand on the older son, Manasseh. And Jacob, Joseph said, no, 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 dad, you got it wrong. This is the older one. This is the younger one. And, and Jacob says, I know. Yes, your older son will be the father of nations, but your younger son, the one who is named for what? Being grateful for what God has done for him in the present, is the one who will be the father of a multitude of nations. And everything about culture said that was the wrong thing. The older son gets the greater blessing. But the blessing wasn't coming from Jacob. It was coming from God. And Joseph, through all that he'd been through, knew it, and he just backed off and let Dad do it. And the Bible history proves that's exactly what happened. He goes on and blesses his other sons, and he said, It's time for me to go back to be with my fathers. Don't bury me in a foreign land. And so when he dies, they take him all the way back north to his home, 
And he was actually buried in the cave that Abraham and Sarah were buried in, where Isaac and Rebekah were buried, where Leah was buried, where so much of his family was buried. He was able to be laid in the same cave that they were when he died. Then Joseph and his brothers, they returned to Egypt because that's where Joseph is in charge. But something interesting happens. See, the brothers are still unchanged through all of this. Their hearts are still hard. They were watering that root of the enemy in their minds, and they were afraid that with their father's death, Joseph would become like them, that he would treat them poorly because of what they've done. See, another lesson for us here, when you give your thinking over to the sins and the schemes of the enemy, you begin to think like the enemy. The older brothers couldn't have imagined that Joseph would have done something kind because they couldn't imagine doing something kind. They understood respecting authority, and they understood taking advantage of people who were weaker than them. See, when you give your thinking over to the schemes of the enemy, you begin to think like he does. You begin to see the worst of people. It's why so often when people have a sin or, or a couple of sins that they point out and they talk about and they make sure you know everybody is doing, it's because that's the one that they know best. It's the one that they're caught in. It's the one that they're trapped in. It's the sin that they're most familiar with. And so the brothers do what they do best. They lie to Joseph. Not the time to lie to their brother, but they do. If you go to Genesis 50, verse 14, after burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied them to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful because their minds aren't full of God. Their minds are full of the enemy of God. Now, Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, you can just hear this is just ridiculous. Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you. Do they not remember that Joseph and Jacob had time to talk? Jacob would have said this, but he didn't. Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. They don't understand grace and forgiveness. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to care of you, care for you and your children. So he assured them by speaking kindly to them. In the beginning of the story, when we heard about their anger and their hatred, the one thing that they couldn't do was even speak a kind word to their brother. And Joseph had him. And he speaks kindly to them. The one thing they could not do. Joseph knows that he isn't God and that God has everything in his hands. And so often we try to be God because either we don't trust or we're not patient enough. Rather than just sitting back and being patient and being prayerful and letting God do his work on his time frame. Joseph knew that God works according to God's good purpose on our behalf and for his glory. Even when your expectations aren't the same as God's plans, doesn't mean that God isn't at work. It turns out God knows what he's doing so much better than you and I do. God knows what is best for us so much better than you and I do. It's why it's so important to know what truth is in the Bible or else we believe the lying words of the world. It's why we never stray from Scripture. It's why we're going to invite you to come on Wednesday nights and to learn even more about what's in the Bible so that we learn God's truth and not the world's. 
So from here we move to this book of Exodus and we meet Moses. But before we do, there's an incredible passage at the beginning of the books of the Exodus. Exodus 1 verse 8. Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. The new pharaoh in Egypt, Egypt had lost all of the lessons of his people's history and didn't bother to know about Joseph. He'd forgotten his nation's history. Joseph had been canceled from Egypt's collective memory. What follows with Moses and the Israelites living in Egypt, being in bondage, is a good example of what happens to a nation when it removes God from their leadership in public life and chooses to ignore the lessons, both good and bad, of their past. That's what we're going to understand when we look at Moses. Egypt and America today have hearts that have been hardened towards God. It isn't that God isn't asking to be in. It's that both in Egypt, Pharaoh, and America today, people all over our place are saying, we don't even want you. If you're real, we're not interested. If you're listening today and you feel like you're stuck in a pit, maybe it's a pit that you created. Maybe it's a problem that started with you. Maybe it's something that you were just in a situation that you had no idea about, never wanted to be there, but there you are nonetheless. I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. You're not in that bottom of that pit by yourself. If you will only look up to God and live in faith and look, live faithfully, I will promise you that God is at work in your life, even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel it. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. Get God, let God's truth have the best of you. Your circumstance, maybe it's grief, your pain, your addiction, it doesn't have to be the end of you. It doesn't define you because God who created you defines you when he created you. And he declared you to be very good and created in his image. And he's not going to leave you alone in the bottom of a pit. You know, what we do is we dirty and we muddy that image of God. But God is still there. And God is still working for you. God is still at work in your life. And what he's looking for us to do, whether things are going well or you feel like things are going miserably, God is looking for us to be people of faith who live faithfully for him. And when we do that, God is actually preparing us for the next chapter of our life that we can't even begin to imagine. And we'll never see it if we don't do the little things. And Joseph is such a great example of doing the little things. Live in faith and live faithfully. God is at work in your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage about Joseph. Thank you, Lord, for the way that uh, you moved in this young man of 17 that learned great faith at a young age. And he was bold and he was brazen. But you know what? He didn't add anything to it. He just told the truth. And he was faithful to you, God. He lived faithfully. He never gave up hope because his hope wasn't in himself. It wasn't in his circumstances. It wasn't in the people who he worked for, the houses that he stayed in. His hope was in you. God, help us to be people who live that way. Help us to be people who live with our hope in you, knowing, trusting, believing, and living in a way that shows that we know that you are at work in our lives. What might feel like suffering, what might feel so difficult, what might feel hopeless, when we turn it over to you, is just training for what it is that you've got for us next. God, thank you that you are a God who is faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.
Awesome. Here's my parting thought for you today. Uh, Psalm 23, David wrote about uh, the valley of the shadow of death. There's a place called Wadi, Wadi Kelt in Israel. And it's this incredibly deep valley that gets really narrow and it just looks scary. And David would run sheep through there. That was a part of, the where that he, part of where he went. And he called it the valley of shadow of death or the valley of darkness. But here's the thing. The passage is we will pass through the valley of the shadow of death. That pit that you're in, that place that you feel stuck, it's not a place that you're meant to live forever. It's a place that you pass through. It's a place of passage, not a place of permanence. And that passage, when we give it to God, is to your future and it is to your purpose. And so it might feel like you're stuck, but you're only stuck if you give up on God. If you give it to God, God is going to take you through that place and you're going to understand what your purpose in Him is, what it is that you're created for. Thanks for coming, folks. Have a great week. Wednesday night, right here, 6 o'clock, we're going to start between the passages. One more song before you go. Hope you see you next Sunday.